Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'll be speaking with Ji Young Kim and Dan Feenup about their paper, Effects of Non-Reciprocal Peer Tutoring with Preschool Students. Ji Young is a second-year PhD student in Applied Behavior Analysis at the Teachers College at Columbia University. She received her Master's in Applied Behavior Analysis at the Teachers College at Columbia University and her Bachelor's in Psychology from Bernard College at Columbia University. Ji Young has multiple publications focused on topics such as the effects of a decision protocol-informed toilet training intervention, a review of prompt fading procedures, peer tutoring with preschoolers, and listener behavior. She is interested in the translation of behavioral economics research to the design of the educational system. For example, the application of delayed discounting in a natural environment to investigate individuals spending slash saving behavior in finding efficient ways to implement instructions in a classroom token economy system. Our second guest, Dan Feenup, is an associate professor of applied behavior analysis at the Teachers College at Columbia University. He received his master's in applied behavior analysis from Southern Illinois University and his PhD in school psychology from Illinois State University. Dan and his students conduct research on instructional design and educational performance. He has published numerous articles in behavior analytic journals. He is an associate editor at the Journal of Behavioral Education and the Analysis of Verbal Behavior. He is also a guest associate editor at the Psychological Record. He also serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior, Behavior Analysis and Practice, the Journal of Developmental and Physical Disabilities, Behavior Analysis Research and Practice, and Behavior Development. Dan currently serves on the Licensed Behavior Analyst New York State Board and is a past member of the New York State Association for Behavior Analysis. Today I'm speaking with Ji Young and Dan about their paper, The Effects of Non-Reciprocal Peer Tutoring with Preschool Students, which is a brief practice report that describes their analysis of a pretty creative peer tutoring arrangement that they tried out. It's a really interesting paper. Before I play the interview, I want to give you a heads up that you might catch some connectivity issues that were present during the interview. I tried to edit everything out as best I could, but you're likely going to hear an imperfect splice or two if you listen closely. 
But with that said, it was a really great interview. I'm really excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here is my interview with Ji Young Kim and Dan Feenup. Hello and welcome to the podcast today. We're really excited to have Ji Young Kim and Dan Feenup joining us. Hi, thank you for having us here today. Um, I'm Ji Young Kim. I'm currently a second year PhD student at Teachers College Columbia University on the Applied Behavior Analysis Program. Hi, I'm Dan Feenup. Um, I am, this is my fourth year at Teachers College and um, eight years prior, I was uh, in an ABA program at Queens College. Excellent. And we're very excited to have you on to talk about your paper, the effects of non-reciprocal peer tutoring with preschool children. I was saying before that I really struggle saying non-reciprocal. I see right there, I messed it up. And so I don't envy you both probably having to speak quite a bit about this, this particular topic, but nevertheless, very excited to hear about it. To begin, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about each one of you and sort of your journey within ABA, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, of course. Um, so in college, uh, I, I went to, I got my bachelor's degree at Barnard College, Columbia University at 2007, 17. Um, and in the course of my college years, I took a gap year to really see what I can do with my career, what I want to do after I graduate. Um, and I went back home, which is Korea for me. And I volunteered for an ABA clinic in Korea. And that was actually my first time hearing applied behavior analysis. And I was, I was thinking, why not give it a try? Um, yes. So I went to the clinic and I really, I was fascinated by how all the behavioral theories and practices were applied and actually cha uh, changing the, the clients' lives. It was just fascinating to me. Um, and starting there, I started to apply to different ABA programs. And that's how I ended up at the master's program at Teachers College Columbia University. And I continued my study here um, right now until I'm in my second year of PhD. Nice. Well, good luck with your PhD. I noticed in your, your background, you said you volunteered at the ABA clinic. Was that, is that, does the infrastructure and where you were practicing, does that just not have the sort of resources to be able to pay people doing ABA? Or what does that, that look like, if you don't mind me asking? So that is also one of, one was one, uh, one of the reasons why um, they didn't really have that infrastructure of paying. And it was actually their first time having any sort of person coming in who doesn't have a BCBA to observe. Yeah. Um, so RBT, there weren't, at the time, there weren't any RBTs at the clinic. Um, and I also didn't know that was an opportunity that was available for me. Um, and so it was more like, a, can I come in and observe what happens in the clinic? And it became like this three times a week coming in for the whole day, um, really just observing and uh, helping here and there to really get a little bit of a uh, little bit of a dose of ABA um, in the clinic. Wow. Wow. That's a cool story. Dan, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I was a an aimless uh, psychology undergrad, not sure what to do with this uh, this degree. And then I um, got an email from Leonard Green, who's an old basic researcher um, about work with families with autism doing applied behavior analysis. And I didn't really know what that meant, um, but I applied and I got my first job and it started with a three day, um, eight hours a day training in ABA. And so to me, it sounded like an interesting opportunity. 
And uh, very quickly, you know, by the end of that three-day training, I had found like a career in doing ABA. I was really impressed with the kind of structured nature of it um, and the, the outcomes uh, with the kids. And so that led me, so I did that for a couple of years in undergrad. And then um, that led me to Southern Illinois University um, where I got my master's degree. And I did, from there, I started doing some stimulus equivalence research with Mark Dixon. And then I went and got my PhD in school psychology and worked with Tom Critchfield and expanded on the um, uh, stimulus equivalence work. And then as part of the school psychology program, you have to do a pre-doc internship. And so I went to the May Institute and I was there for uh, two years in the end where I worked with um, Gary Pace a lot mm. um, at the May Center for Education and Neuro, Re Neuro Rehabilitation. And then I got my first academic job at Queens College. I was there for eight years and um, been four years, my last four years at Teachers College doing more ABA. Awesome. Well, let's, let's jump into the paper. Do you mind giving us a overview uh, of the study? Our study, we were looking at um, the non-reciprocal peer tutoring. We realized that a couple studies that were on peer tutoring with preschoolers were reciprocal. Now that means it's a peer tutoring intervention. It's a type of a peer mediated instructional intervention where the students function as both 2T and two tutor. Mm. Um, in a typical reciprocal peer tutoring, the tutor and 2T will switch their roles so that they both get a turn being the tutor and the 2T. In a non-reciprocal peer tutoring, they don't have to switch that role so that one student functions as a tutor the whole time, and then another student functions as a 2D for the whole time. Mm. Um, so because there were so many research on reciprocal peer tutoring, uh, well, there, wasn't, there weren't that many studies with preschoolers, um, but even those that did have peer tutoring with preschoolers, they were reciprocal. So we were thinking and said, you know, why not try non-reciprocal peer tutoring? There were some literature that that say that uh, non-reciprocal peer tutoring is, is more effective compared to like a cross-age peer tutoring, mm. reciprocal peer tutoring. So based on that, we realized that we could really try this out in our classroom and see if the tutors learn as much as 2Ds, just even using a non-reciprocal peer tutoring. And so that's looking at this, this classroom that you had mentioned was like a, it was a classroom set up for individuals with, with special needs to some level. Is that right? It was a special education classroom. That's and, correct. And you're utilizing sort of a one directional or a one, a, a very strict two tutor, 2D relationship, as opposed to a, a dynamic where they're going to take turns in those roles. And so could you tell us a little bit about the specific participants who were, who were the tutors, who were the 2Ts? Yes, of course. So this study had four preschoolers. They were, their ages ranged from four to five at the time. Um, and then the tutors were typically developing students in each dyad. Um, and then there were two Ds, uh, two 2Ts who were, uh, who had a pre who were preschoolers with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, so they were kind of matched with a tutor who was typically developing and a 2T who um, had a preschooler with disability. Um, for each dyad. And then we had two dyads um, going uh, in, throughout the whole study. Wow. And were those, were, those, were those tutors from the same classroom or were they being pulled in from a, like an adjoining classroom? 
Yeah, um, they were in the same classroom because it was an inclusion classroom. We were able to, we were lucky to have um, both uh, students who were typically developing and who uh, preschoolers who were disabilities, uh, had disabilities at the time. Nice. And as far as the, the training for, for the tutors, what did that look like? Yeah, so because it was preschoolers, we really wanted to make sure that the tutors can function as a tutor. So it was kind of like a two-step process. So first thing we taught how the students teach a 2D. So we as teachers, we were making sure that the tutors were delivering a correct antecedent, uh, making sure that they were taking the two T's behavior in consideration and providing the correct uh, consequence um, based on that behavior. Um, so it, we used a TPRA, which is a teacher performance rate and accuracy. It's a form or it's a type of um, a measure that we use to make sure that the teachers or anyone who is implementing an intervention um, in a correct way, in a planned correct way. So we would use this form to make sure that the tutor is delivering the antecedent correctly and providing the correct, uh, correct consequence depending on the behavior of that student. So that was the first step, the delivery of the instruction. And then the next step was uh, making sure that the tutor can also record the data correctly. So each tutor had a data sheet in front of them. Um, they, were, they could put a plus for correct, uh, correct responses from the 2D or minuses for incorrect responses. Uh, we always we had an IOA session like at the end. We didn't call that we didn't call it that way with the students, of course. Um, but we had like an IOA session at the end um, to see to cross check with the student and the teacher to to show um, that the to to show the tutor that oh this is what you did. Uh, we have the we have the exact same data sheet, so this is great. I um, mean, just making sure that the tutor can uh, collect data in a correct manner. Mm. Wow. And how long did that process take? So I would say it didn't take as long as we anticipated. Um, they actually learned pretty quickly. I would say it took about, about a week and then the students were able to deliver it independently. Wow. It, it's a pretty cool process because, you know, one of the big themes in behavior analysis is problems with treatment fidelity. Right. This is when we have adults delivering interventions to children. And here, Ji Young and Georgette Morgan were able to teach four and five-year-olds to correctly deliver three-term contingency instruction and collect data and, uh, and do all that. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was reflecting on that, thinking of all of the difficulty I've had in the past with not only treatment integrity, but data collection fidelity, which is, is one of my particular passions. And to hear that you're working with, with preschoolers able to do that with it seems like high fidelity. Of course, we'll explore that when we look into the, the results soon, but uh, an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And so can we, can, I, I kind of want to visualize what that, that has to look like with the, the preschoolers. Are they having fun with this? Like what, how are they responding to this setup? Yes, yes. No, they were having so much fun. I think it, it was their first time ever being a teacher and also, you know, working with a friend. Um, so despite being, despite their roles, um, just being tutor or 2D, they were really having fun just, you know, get to work with the student that they really liked. And we kind of purposely paired with students who are reinforcing to each other mm. um, so that it's like a good dynamic. And I think that also helped the students learn a little better. Nice. 
what were some of the skills, prerequisite skills that the, that the tutors would need for, for, for this role? Right, so this particular study, we looked at tact responses. So the tutors were presenting um, either 3D stimuli or a face of a US president um, so that they can train the 2D um, with their names. So it was crucial that the tutor was able to read the stimuli either on the data sheet or we also wrote it like on the back of an index card or on, on actually directly on the 3D stimuli so that the tutor can read um, from the stimuli itself too. Mm. So it was important that we made sure that the tutors were able to recognize and read um, those uh, stimuli. And another one was um, just being able to, you know, deliver those uh, reinforcers and consequences in an orderly manner to their peers. Mm. Um, so some students, um, we realized some, it really depended on their personality. Some students were so excited to provide reinforcement. Um, so <laughs> some students were um, a little less excited to, you know, say good job to their friends. They were a little shy. Um, so just being able to, you know, just uh, be interactive with their students um, and have that peer functioning going on. That's awesome. So you sort of begin the study, I assume, by setting up the, 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 the training for the tutors. You go through that process. Um, Dan, did you have a point? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say another prerequisite, and this is kind of <clears throat> more related to the outcomes that we'll talk about that tutors learned, was that we did assessments for what we call bidirectional naming mm. or incidental uh, language acquisition. So, uh, you know, the people here speaking in the podcast uh, we can all learn from antecedents. We don't necessarily require um, direct reinforcement of every single response in order to acquire new responses. And so that was really important that we selected tutors who could also engage and who had that repertoire. Mm. Um, because while they're doing peer tutoring, there are a whole bunch of antecedents, but the, the tutor never is consequated for his or her response. Right. There's okay. no the teachers not coming in and saying, that's right. That is President Obama. Right. right. They are delivering consequences to other kids. But from the tutor's perspective, they only contact antecedent stimuli. They do not contact consequences. And so it's important for us to make sure that the tutors had some indication of uh, being able to learn from antecedents so that they would also benefit from the non-reciprocal peer tutoring. Nice. And I guess to segue into them, what were the, the requirements for the, the 2D? Like what, what skills, prerequisites did they need to have or potentially not have to, to fill that role? Right. So as a 2D, we made sure that the students were able to sit in a chair for a prolonged time um, because the tutor was a student. Uh, it might have taken longer than a, a teacher teaching. So mm. it was important that the 2T was able to sit. Um, and also just being able to attend to all the vocal directions um, and respond um, to their peers given the vocal direction. Nice. And was there anything around challenging behavior? You know, I, I guess I'm probably somewhat tainted and and some of the clients that I've worked with, I primarily focus on severe problem behavior, but I imagine that to, to qualify as a 2T in a, in a program like this, you would not want to see any real challenging behavior. So I think the classroom itself, because it was also an inclusion classroom, a lot of the students didn't emit a lot of uh, 
problem behaviors. Um, and then during the course of the study too, uh, we didn't really see much uh, any problem behavior that needed to be addressed during the, during the study. Um, I think it also helped that the students were working with peers and they really enjoyed that. So that, I think that really helped the students, you know, sit in a chair, um, get to learn these new things. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. And can we, so we've talked about the, the participants involved. Can you talk about the tasks? You mentioned that it was, was uh, tacting flashcards of sort, but could you go into a little bit more detail with that? Yeah, so we used, um, we, want, we were thinking about what could be a functional skill that we can teach for preschoolers. Um, in, a, in a elementary level, we could use like spelling words, um, sight words, but we were thinking what could be really uh, functional for preschoolers leaving out of preschool soon, um, who can use this as a life skill. Uh, we first started off with coins, um, but we realized when we actually did the probe to see if the students uh, were able to tack the name of coins, given the visual stimuli, the students were able to tack at least two or three of them. So mm -hmm. those were out. <laughs> the next one we looked at were, okay, let's look at US presidents and see if they have this in repertoire. Um, so we, we showed um, a five uh, US presidents pictures and realized that the students had zero in their repertoire. And we decided that this could be a good tact response that we can use, good stimuli that we can use for the study. Um, but then the other dyad actually, uh, they, one of the tutors I think had a few in repertoire already. So we moved on to something else like 3D stimuli, like spheres, um, pyramid, um, and those names were very new to the third diet, the last diet as well. Um, so that was a stimuli that um, the diet, both diet, both tutor and 2D emitted zero correct responses. Um, and we decided to use those as um, our stimuli. And our purpose was to, um, for the US president to show a picture to the tutor showing the picture to the 2D and the 2D being able to emit the name of the uh, US president's name. We only, uh, we only did the last name of the US presidents. Um, and then the second dia, they used the 3D stimuli uh, and they actually had like a physical plastic 3D stimuli in the mm. class that they used in the classroom. So we would use those, the tutor would hold that up in front of the 2D and the 2D would uh, emit the name, vocally emit the name of the 3D stimuli. And with the, with the 3D stimuli, was, was there like written on the back of it what, what the, the shape was or the 3D, whatever you would call that? Is that, is that written somewhere on the, on the back of that shape? Yeah, we put a little tape on the back and then wrote on top of that so that um, the tutor can say from the back, but the 2D can't. Do you remember what the, the shapes of the presidents were? Do you remember? Uh, yes, the presidents were Obama. It was Bush, uh, Kennedy. I'm trying to remember a couple more. Um, those are the big ones. And then the 3D stimuli were sphere, um, cube, mm. pyramid. Uh, what else? Cylinder. Cylinder, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, those were the stimuli that we used. <laughs> nice. And so for each lesson, the, the tutors are presenting those to the 2Ds and, and being able to, to read the back for the label. Can, you, can we talk about what, the, what sessions, training sessions would look like in terms of how many opportunities are being presented and what that looked like? 
Yeah, so the tutor and 2D would first sit in front of a table together. The tutor would have like a pencil and data, data sheet in front of him or her. Um, and then they would first show the, the picture or the 3D stimuli. And then the 2D, we would expect that the 2D would emit the response within five, se five seconds of the uh, vocal antecedent mm -hmm. of saying, oh, who is this or what is this? Um, and then, well, for the training session, they had 20 opportunities. So there were four stimuli, um, and then they were, uh, there were four stimuli, five opportunities each within that 20, uh, 20 opportunities to respond um, so that the tutor would rotate. We actually purposely uh, frame the data sheet so that the tutor can just go down one at a time. So we, already arranged um, mm. the order so that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have any consecutive same, uh, same stimuli. Um, so that the data sheet is there and then the tutor just had to go down the data sheet and then present 20 opportunities and then mark plus or minus. Mm. Um, the criterion was 90% correct responding across one session. Okay, and so in the, in the setup in terms of the, the tutors, 2Ds, how many sessions or how many trials specifically were, were they going through again? Each trial, they had 20, uh, each session, they had 20 trials. So in each uh, session out of the 20 trials, there were four stimuli and they had five equal opportunities for each stimulus. And if the, the 2Ts response was incorrect, what did the tutor do exactly? Yeah, so this was also part of the correct the tutor training, like the first step of the tutor training. All the tutors got training on how to deliver a correction procedure for um, each of the incorrect responses. So what it will look like was that once the 2T emits an incorrect response, the tutor would immediately um, say the correct response um, so that the 2D can hear or see, see at the same time. Um, and then after that, the tutor would provide a, uh, a one more antecedent once more um, so that the 2D has an opportunity to independently respond. And then once the 2D responds that correct response, um, the, tutor, the tutor wouldn't reinforce or correct that, would simply just move on to the next trial. Nice. And then for the correct responding, what was the, what was the consequence or what did the 2D do? Mm -hmm. The correct response is the tutor would vocally praise the 2T, say, good job, you did an awesome job. <laughs> Some students really like drawing stars on a whiteboard and giving it to the students. <laughs> so just, yeah, just any like type of reinforcement. It, it had a vocal praise to it, but some of the students got really, really creative of how they can deliver reinforcers. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and you said earlier, you described the mastery criteria. At what point did you sort of end the, the training? At what point were the, had they completely mastered everything and, and were moving on? So once the 2T emitted 90% times a 90% correct responding across one session, um, the tutors, well, the teachers brought the tutors and the 2Ds and we did a probe, uh, we did a little probe to make sure that the students were able to emit the TAC responses, um, even with the teacher. That profile consisted of 10 and it had two opportunities for each, two equal opportunities for each stimuli. 
each stimulus um, and we made sure we kind of tested to see if the tutor and the 2D both acquired the TAC responses after this non-reciprocal peer tutoring. Okay. Were you watching the, the 2D tutor interaction or did you pull them both separately and test them both separately? What did that look like? Yeah, so during the training itself, we kind of started off by, uh, it was kind of like a fading procedure. So we started off by, you know, watching the students a little close, a little close by, um, not too far away, not too close, um, so that there's no reactivity. Um, but we were kind of uh, making sure that the students are, you know, doing it in an orderly manner. Um, and then we sl slowly faded ourselves out so that we can do deliver others programs to other students at the same time. Um, we can uh, maybe do other things in the classroom. Um, so during the training itself, at the end, the tutor and 2D were independently delivering it to each other. And once they were done, they just brought the data sheet to us saying that, oh, I'm done. <laughs> um, the pro procedure, we, had, we took both tutor and 2D to a separate room, um, once a one at a time. And then that's where we delivered the, the probe um, trials for each, each tutor and 2D. It's probably important to note that the probes are uh, conducted under extinction conditions. So there's no feedback, mm. no praise, no no error correction. All of those instructional components are removed during the probe. Mm -hmm. And you're simply presenting the, the either the flashcards or the three-dimensional objects. The tutors are saying their names based off of presumably the, the instruction they were giving and then and them reading the words over time. And then the two T's based off of the instruction from the tutors. Is that correct? Yep. Yes, that's exactly. And before we get into the results, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the design you use. So in the paper you describe it as a multiple probe design. Could we, could we talk about what that looked like and why you selected that particular design? Right here. So if in the design, we started off as one probe session across all the tutor 2D in both dyads. And then uh, in the, after one pre-probe session, that's when we delivered the peer tutoring, the non-reciprocal non peer tutoring um, for dyad one. Mm. And then once they, uh, once they showed mastery, that's when we deliver one post-probe. Um, and in the meantime, while this, the first dyad was going through peer tutoring, um, the, the second dyad um, did not go through the intervention. They were still in the baseline phase. And then right before when, right before the inter when we implemented the intervention um, for the second dyad, we uh, conducted another pre-pro for the second dyad. And that's when, the, when dyad one actually did their post-pro too. And then after that, the second diet, uh, we, inter in, we introduced the peer, non-reciprocal peer tutoring. And then we did the same thing once they showed mastery, we conducted the post-probe. Nice. And why did you choose this, this particular design for this study? So this design, it, so we actually had another dyad that was supposed to be part of the study here too. Yeah. So it was supposed to have like three dyads. Um, we weren't able to get to that last dyad, um, but the first we when we first had those three dyads, it made the most sense that we had the three. We had the multiple baselines so that it has a so we can introduce in a systematic manner, and then there's that experimental control there. Nice. Um, I think also that since it was somewhat experimental, like a lot of research we do is not necessarily experimental in that 
its normal educational practices. But this one was a little more, maybe this will work and maybe this won't work. Right. I think it was important to do more of a probe approach rather than have the consistent, you know, every single day we're probing to make sure that they still don't know the president's names because that would take away from what they were at the school for, which was to be educated. And so the multiple probe was also kind of an ethical consideration to reduce taking them from their regular education. Yeah. And, and it makes a lot of sense. And the graph you you have in your, your paper is really beautifully constructed and it makes it very clear exactly what you did. It goes very clearly shows you guys did your, your pre probe, which again, that is you guys pulling the dyad separately. So each student by themselves and an instructor are running those trials. I'm imagining. That's and correct. Yeah. And then going into, in the first dyad, the, the peer tutoring. And then when they finish, you have your post probe, which is happening at the same time of the pre probe for the second dyad. Correct. And then, basically replication of that with the pure tutoring and then a final final probe. And so given the setup of, of what we're describing here, can you talk about the results? Can you, can you say what the, the data indicated? Yeah, so across all four participants, the bo both dyads, um, all participants emitted zero correct responses during the pre-probe. So they did not know any of the president's name. They did not know any of the 3D stimuli. Um, and the pre-probe data shows that. Um, but after the peer tutoring sessions, um, Dyad 1, both tutor and 2D, um, tutor, the tutor actually um, actually emitted 100% correct responding um, for all the president's names. So that was really, that was the whole point of the study too, to see how much the tutor was learning through this procedure. Mm. They didn't necessarily have to be the 2T to be able to learn. But even as a tutor, we were able to show that um, the tutor learned and actually emitted 100% correct responding. And in that dyad, 2D, as expected, they, they learned from the tutor. So the tutor, 2D, emitted 90% correct responding um, after the training. Um, for dyad 2, they also started off at 0%. Um, and after the training, they also showed a great growth in terms of um, how much correct responding they're showing. The tutor showed 70% correct responding. So it was, a, it was a big jump from zero. Um, it wasn't 100, but we saw the graph and we were like, wow, they actually learned seven out of 10 of the 3D stimuli. That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so that was, that was a great data that we got. And the 2D, because they got direct training from the tutor, um, showed 90% correct responding in the post probe too. So it shows that nice growth after the training across both tutor and 2D. That's amazing. And really de demonstrating that this non-reciprocal peer tutoring not only benefits the 2D, which in some ways you would expect and it would certainly be required, but it's actually benefiting the tutor as well, um, which, which is really fascinating. And so what do you think are some of the implications of, of this data and this study? I definitely think the first thing is that, so peer tutoring definitely can be done with preschoolers. So even younger population can benefit from a procedure that we typically use for a little bit older students, like elementary age students. But here, um, preschool students, they're able to train effectively. They're able to learn how to deliver instruction effectively and also learn at the same time. Mm. Um, and that would really mean that because as, as the teacher in the classroom, I was fading myself out throughout the training too. 
um, it was it was a matter of an efficiency too. The students were delivering instruction to each other while I was also helping out another student or teaching another student, delivering another program. So I was able to do two things at the same time after training this one tutor. Wow. Um, so it was great to see that in a preschool classroom. Um, <laughs> and another thing is uh, non-reciprocal peer tutoring is effective at teaching both tutor and 2D. So I think traditionally, if, if we say peer tutoring, people will think that it's going to be both um, because of a fairness issue too, students are going to be both the tutor and 2D and switch roles to teach each other. But we don't have to do that in order to teach both of them. Um, just if we assign a tutor and then have a 2D there, they can teach each other and both of them can learn at the same time. So that also actually addresses the matter of efficiency too. Yeah, I'd also add that um, if you look outside of the behavior analytic literature on peer tutoring, there's at least a dozen systematic reviews, some of which include meta-analyses. And one of the common threads in that literature are the kind of social skills and emotional benefits of doing peer tutoring. So what mm -hmm. Ji Young was talking about with the kids enjoying this and smiling and um, enjoying delivering, you know, uh, stars on a whiteboard to each other. Um, we didn't measure it in our study, but, um, you know, there are social benefits to these things. And so since we're working with populations that benefit from um, social skills instruction and training, this is a great opportunity to have a structured way for them to interact and, um, you know, kind of pair each other with reinforcers. And so I think it, it has that aspect to it also. That's amazing. Where do you both see the, the next steps for this research line going? What, what do you see as the sort of immediate needs to further develop this out a little bit more? So I think one thing is that this study had a tutor who was typically developing and two T's who were uh, preschoolers with disabilities. I, would, I think the next step would be to see how switching that role also affects the results. Mm. So maybe having a student, uh, maybe having a diet, um, both students preschoolers with disabilities or having the tutor as a preschooler with disability teaching a typically developing student. So mm. just kind of changing that dynamic within the diet I think would be a great next um, and another thing, I think it's, it, it's, it goes with what Dr. Finov just said too, um, about how we can extend this to more social skills or any peer functioning within the classroom. So maybe the tutor can teach how to deliver social approvals or how to interact with other peers. So really incorporating this um, to not just academics, but to um, other social areas in the preschool setting. That's fascinating. What, not to put you on the spot, but do you have any thoughts on how you could potentially design a non-reciprocal peer tutoring related to social skills? Any thoughts on that? I do think it could be maybe the be reinforced or teach, first of all, how to um, do like a interactive play with another friend. They mm -hmm. can model it and have the 2T kind of do it after the model. And then maybe the tutor could deliver reinforcement or corrections um, depending on how the 2D does it. Um, but that's like a, that's like just an idea that I had in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. Dan, any additional thoughts on that at all? Yeah. Um, well, I think in terms of future directions, I think the thing that I like about peer tutoring is that it, it falls into this um, theme in some of my research about trying to get more than you initially program. So I also do work in 
stimulus equivalence and derived relations, which is all about how teaching a little bit can generate a lot more learning if you kind of program it correctly. And so, um, so I think peer tutoring kind of falls into that. So Ji Young was talking about how, you know, when, when the kids would normally be kind of left to for a break because she has to work with another student, they can be doing peer tutoring. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden they're getting lots more, you know, learning opportunities and whatnot. So she ends up getting a lot more by, you know, having peer tutoring. Um, I do have a, that we had a student last year who did a dissertation on peer tutoring and she looked at different, um, tutoring ratios. So she was, uh, was Victoria in a fifth grade classroom, Ji Young? She third? was in the third, third grade. Third grade. So, so she was doing peer tutoring and she was looking at things like uh, one tutor and two tutees versus one tutor and five tutees, kind of mm-hmm. looking at like, how much can one kiddo teach <laughs> a bunch of other kiddos? And then that, you know, drives down the cost of instruction because one teacher is now providing many more uh, learning opportunities. And, and interestingly, the kids were able to do it where they, you know, were able to, del- you know, deliver one antecedent and then praise and a correction to five different kids in rapid succession, constituting one trial. I mean, it was, it was kind of wild. Wow. Yeah. And I, what I love about this research is not only, again, not only are you looking at the, the effect on the 2D, because in some ways, again, it makes sense they're getting instruction, but I think that if people who are unfamiliar with this line of research, you might go, yeah, but you're wasting the, the tutor's time. Their students, they should be getting learning opportunities too. And you're saying, hey, they're actually, they're learning and they're getting a great deal of learning opportunities through this process. And not to mention all of the social benefits that you were describing are possible as well. So really fascinating. Do you have any other uh, recent publications in this area or publications that may be coming out that people could check out? Um, I have one. So the the same student who did the dissertation last year were getting the dissertation manuscript ready for publication. But a year before we had done some um, stimulus equivalence or equivalence-based instruction to teach kids um, fraction decimal pictogram uh, relations. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is an old Lynch and Kubo paper from 1995. And in the very first study, what we did was we did that direct instruction to teach them, you know, we teach a couple conditional discriminations that result in these larger equivalence classes. And we had one of the peers just sit there and watch. And we wanted to make sure that if you have these kind of observational learning cusps, you can learn um, by observing the consequences of others. You know, could you also form these equivalence classes? And that first study showed that sure enough, you can, kids who have observational learning can watch these procedures and then benefit from them. They can learn the things that are taught as well as derive the relations. And so then in part of her dissertation, she then taught kiddos to deliver um, equivalence-based instruction in a peer tutoring setting. And it was reciprocal. So, you know, this is probably too much for a podcast, but it's the whole, if you teach A to B and B to C, that you can derive relation between A to C. So what we did was we had one tutor teach A, B relations we had the second tutor who was the 2D on the first one teach BC relation. Wow. So they would each teach kind of like <sighs> one link in the chain and then we would pull them aside and we would test them for symmetry and transitivity and equivalence relations. And it was a really neat kind of, you know, joining of two research areas. And you found positive results, I'm, I'm assuming? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're very excited to submit these to a journal. Wow, that I mean, as you said earlier, your your theme being how do we sort of get learning for free? Yeah, I mean, it's like that's taking it to an entirely different level. It seems yeah. like so really, really interesting, really exciting line of research for people who are interested in this, wanting to learn more. Do either of you have recommendations, things that people should should check out? Another study to look at is Luong 2019. It's a meta-analysis that has, it gives a lot of points um, on what an optimal peer tutoring would look like. And this author uh, directly looked at um, how peer tutoring could also benefit the tutor. So he was specifically looking at the tutors gained through the peer tutoring process. And this is where our whole idea of non-reciprocal peer tutoring um, really started because he looked at um, non-reciprocal, well, same age non-reciprocal peer tutoring versus cross-age peer tutoring. Mm. So that'll be reciprocal. And then they hypothesized that the cross-age um, peer tutoring would be more effective or efficient because cross-age, it's a more like a like a normal setting where the tu- where the tutor is almost like the teacher who is older. Right. Um, so it kind of mimics a classroom setting. Um, but they actually found that a same age, um, non-reciprocal peer tutoring had a greater effect size. So that's wow. where we got our idea. And it was really fascinating to see that. But he also has different points of what an optimal peer tutoring will look like. So it's, it's a great study to check out if anyone's interested in peer tutoring. That sounds very interesting. We'll, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Any other, either papers, books, you know, other podcast things that people should, should be considering that are interested mm-hmm. in this area? Well, people should not be listening to other podcasts besides <laughs> just, just to clarify. That's, that's right. I, I really like Ji Young's recommendation and in almost any other area of research, I would never suggest review papers and meta-analyses <laughs> as your first you know, dip in. Um, but because the vast majority of the peer tutoring literature exists outside of ABA, mm. I think it's actually a phenomenal recommendation because um, you don't necessarily just wanna be replicating what's been done out there um, already. And I think right. when you contact these reviews and meta-analyses, I mean, there's so much literature out there that there will be a meta-analysis of peer tutoring for math or a meta-analysis or peer tutoring of reading because there's so many papers that are out there. And so I think if, when you contact these review papers, you know, it'll, it'll suggest to you that you should probably be incorporating these into your regular practice if you're in educational settings more regularly. Mm. And then it would give you also ideas for um, additional studies, which the vast majority of the literature is it's one for one direct learning. So like a kid, like, like what we had in this study, we taught presidents, you get presidents, right? right? And so, and then it's just, they show it works in first grade and second grade and third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And it even works in college. Um, but it's, it's amazing how much um, evidence there is uh, for peer tutoring out there. Wow. Really cool topic. Really, really cool paper. Thank you both so much for, for the work that you do, for the paper you wrote, and for coming on the podcast today. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Before you take off, got a couple of quick announcements for you. First of all, thank you for listening. It's hard to believe it, but this actually concludes the first season of Behavior Analysis and Practice the Podcast. While you wait for season two, Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and seasons. 
You can also suggest bat papers that you'd like us to review and send us questions you'd like us to ask the authors of those papers. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Without their help, this would not exist. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Nervaez, and my production assistants for this episode, Jesse Perrin and Jacqueline Wilson. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.